everyone. Welcome back to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Think for a moment. When was the last time you heard anything positive about marine wildlife and ecosystems? News media outlets seem to be making it their mission to convince us that the ocean is doomed and all of its wonderful species will soon be extinct. However, as you're going to soon hear, this image of the ocean couldn't be further from the truth. Amazing conservation efforts are being tried and accomplished, and because of several worldwide efforts, the future for one of our favorite groups of animals is looking brighter and brighter. Today's episode is part three of the Costa Rica Life, Lava, and Forest series, and our guest, Brad Nahil, is the co-founder and president of Sea Turtles, and that is with S-E-E. <laughs> S-E-A is a different organization. Just listen to everything this incredible organization is tackling. They, quote, help save sea turtles through conservation tours. Yes, conservation travel. I told you all I'm not crazy for loving this concept. Supporting important nesting beaches, working to end the demand for turtle shell, helping clean up plastic waste from turtle habitats, and promoting inclusivity in the turtle community, end quote. That is so much good stuff. Brad and I have a fantastic conversation about all of these initiatives, plus his story about how he found his calling by sort of falling into sea turtle work. He also openly discusses the highlights and challenges of his career. As we all know from our own life experiences, no one's journey is all unicorns and rainbows, and Brad has had his fair share of difficult moments. Get ready to learn a ton about current sea turtle conservation and what we all can do to help. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening, and maybe even give us a rating and review if you're feeling really moved. Ratings and reviews help others find the show and spread the great conservation word. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Brad. Hi, Brad. Thank you so much for coming on the Rewildology podcast today. We are going to have a blast getting into your story and everything that you've done for this incredible group of animals. But first, I absolutely love how you just kind of fell into sea turtles, I guess is the best <laughs> way to say it. But let, let's get into that. Tell me more about your journey. Where where did it all start? And how did you get to Costa Rica? Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. And you know, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I've really been enjoying it. I think you've uh, really covered a bunch of fun stories, and I'm really looking forward to digging into to more of them. But yeah, my personal story. So uh, you know, I like to say when I when I talk about my background is, you know, I did not grow up a fan of sea turtles. Tigers are actually my favorite animal. Don't, oh my God. don't tell anybody. Might be one of my favorites too. I have a tattoo of one. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I didn't grow up with a pet turtle or, you know, I never really had a dream of being a marine biologist or anything, but I started to learn about environmental issues in high school and then really started delving into them in college. My sister really inspired me with that. She was kind of the original environmentalist in the family. And so while I was at school, I got a, I was, I went to Penn State and I was initially studying international business, but I decided halfway through my career, my 
my time at Penn State that I did not want to go into the business world. And at the time, they were launching a new program called environmental economics. And that was a brand new field at the time. And it allowed me, switching into that allowed me to not have to go to college for a couple more years, but allowed me to start getting into the environmental field and start taking some classes around that. So I switched about halfway through. And, you know, I realized when I graduated that, you know, I wanted to work in this field, but I really knew nothing about it except what I was reading in books and magazines and online. So I decided I wanted to go and do some volunteer work. And I picked Latin America as a region that I would want to visit and travel and, and learn about. And so when I went online, this is even pre-Google, I was looking for wildlife, environmental volunteer projects in Latin America. And almost every single thing that came up was sea turtles in Costa Rica. And so I said, okay, I guess I'm doing sea turtles in Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> like that's as much thought as I really put into it. I didn't have to be a biologist to do it. I saved up some money and I got on an airplane. I flew to Costa Rica and, you know, the first beach that I worked at was on the Pacific coast near the town of Tamarindo. And I fell in love with the animals. I fell in love with the country and I ended up volunteering multiple times. I would spend a few months in Costa Rica volunteering, working with sea turtles. I also worked at an organic farm for a while. Then I come back to the States and deliver pizza and save money up and go back again for a few more months. And Eventually, I got enough experience and contacts and stuff that, that I got offered a job. I met my ex-wife in Costa Rica. She was a biologist, and we finally got offered a job working, running a new project in, in Costa Rica. Nice. Okay, so well, let's keep going. So, okay. So then after that, at this point, are you full-time in Costa Rica? And what was this project that you were offered? Like, you finally, I got a paid role doing what I love. What was that role? And yeah, were, were you there permanently at this point? Um, no, it was still a seasonal thing at that point. And I do always try to put paid in quotation marks because I raised the money to pay myself. And I, if I remember correctly, I think I don't think I made as much as my airfare to get there. So, but it was some money, but it was for a season. We had, my ex-wife and I had been offered a position with a group called NI, which was an organization that worked in a few different places on conservation projects in Costa Rica and had run the project where her and I had met one of the places that I had volunteered. And so they were starting a new project near the town of Puerto Viejo. People know Costa Rica. It's between Cahuita and, and Puerto Viejo on a beach that had sea turtle nesting, but they weren't sure how much. And it was a beach that had had no protection or no program there. So the uh, assumption was that pretty much all of the eggs are probably getting taken and sold on the black market. So we got hired to run that for one season, which was March to August, um, by the time all the hatchlings were done. And so that was working with leatherback turtles, the really big, you know, 800 pound, eight foot long, you know, dinosaur like sea turtles, which is the ones that I did most of my field work with. And, you know, one of the most fascinating creatures I think our, 
are on the planet. So I did that for a season. And then by the end of that season, we had a child on the way. So we moved to back to the United States. And I got a job working for a couple of different conservation organizations. I worked for a little bit with a group called Rare, working on ecotourism. And then after that, I got a job with Ocean Conservancy, one of the big conservation nonprofits in Washington, D.C., where I was doing fundraising for them, grant writing. And while I was there, the Ocean Conservancy, their previous sea turtle advocate, a woman named Mary Dale Donnelly, who's an absolute legend in the field and one of my favorite people on the whole planet, decided that she was moving on, which I was devastated at first. And then the person that she helped us recruit to replace him turned out to be a hire that changed my life because they brought on a guy named Dr. Wallace J. Nichols or Jay as he's known. And I had known him a little bit through the sea turtle circles before, but an absolutely brilliant scientist and communicator. And so when he was hired by Ocean Conservancy, we were talking one day and he said, you know, I have this idea for a project where we could use ecotourism and volunteer tourism to support sea turtle conservation. And my eyes lit up and I said, I've worked in tourism. I've worked with sea turtles. I can raise the funds for it. Like, I'm in, let's, let's do it. And that was how sea turtles began. It was his idea. And I kind of ran with it and then eventually have raised the funds for it. And we started it at Ocean Conservancy initially, but it became clear after a year or so that it wasn't a great fit for the organization. They didn't really do much international work at the time. It was mostly policy-based. And so we moved it to a different organization called the Ocean Foundation, where we were fiscally sponsored for a while. And then we moved to a couple of different organizations trying to find the best fit. And then eventually in 2017, we decided, you know, we should be our own nonprofit and we've been independent since then. Wow. Talk about a journey yeah. to get to, to get to 2021 as we're sitting down recording, which is amazing. And, and from what I remember, right? So when sea turtles first started to be an idea, this was like 2007, 2008. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Okay, great. So we have a timeline here. And then in 2017 yes. is when you're like, okay, we just need to be our own entity and be our own nonprofit. Yes, exactly. We began the process of, of starting the project, building up what exactly was going to look like, raising the funds, all that stuff in, in 2007. And then we launched it in 2008, just in time for the Great Recession and the collapse of the, the previous collapse of the tourism industry, which is not as bad as the recent one, but still a really challenging one to begin with. But we had some really solid funding to start off with, which allowed us to be able to work through and just build our audience and build our program while we were waiting for the tourism industry to recover. And so, yeah, the initially the whole idea of the project was to do what we and, and others, we didn't come up with the term, but what we call conservation tourism. So tourism, that's a bit beyond ecotourism where it's not just how do you reduce your negative impact when you're traveling, but how do you leave a really positive impact? And how can you benefit the wildlife and the communities of the places that you're visiting? And, you know, one of the reasons that why we wanted to take that approach 
towards sea turtle conservation because when we had the idea and we pitched it, we had a lot of people kind of look at us funny, like, what do you mean? Do you want, like, what do you, how is tourism a tool for conservation? Uh, but what we had decided that we wanted to do was we wanted to be able to help sea turtle communities, communities around sea turtle hotspots grow and thrive financially with the sea turtles being alive and supporting them. The history of sea turtle conservation is a lot like the history of, you know, civilization, the, the history of conservation in that initially there was a really heavy colonial aspect to it. There's a lot of Western, white, older, mostly male academics that would go to around the world, find these important sea turtle habitats and get them protected. And so, you know, great for the turtles, but it wasn't always done in a way that benefited the communities that lived there. A lot of whom had lived for generations, eating the turtles, eating the eggs, using their shells, using other parts of them. And so in a lot of places, it caused a lot of conflict between the communities and the conservation efforts. And I think that the community is, has come around in the past 10 or 20 years. And I think the working with and benefiting the communities has become a much bigger point of emphasis for conservation programs. I think there's still a fair way to go, but we really wanted to get we, run, we really wanted to save sea turtles by getting money into the communities and having people benefit from people coming there. And, you know, I saw a great example of this in Costa Rica. There is this small community called Parismina, which is uh, below Tortuguero National Park, which a lot of people know. It's one of the most visited, probably the most visited sea turtle nesting beach in the world. They, I visited there when I was volunteering the very first time, which was in um, 1999 had a friend there who was teaching English and they had nesting, but there was no program. People were walking around wearing tortoiseshell products. Oh. Eggs were being freely sold. And so there was this mindset of, you know, the turtles are a resource to be exploited. But then, you know, over the next few years, some of the people in the community learned that there were these programs like this company called EcoTeach, which I spent some time working with which brings student groups to volunteer with turtle nesting programs. And so they asked EcoTeach and others to come in and they started a program for members of their community. And within a few years, the illegal collection of eggs was down to almost zero. You know, most of the community was benefiting from this. It was bringing an in income that the community was not getting because all the tourists were passing there and going to Tortuguero. And there was this real amazing transformation in the community towards one that was based around protecting sea turtles. But almost every community along the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica was originally founded to hunt turtles, to eat turtles, to ship them abroad. So, you know, when you're trying to change a paradigm from exploitation to conservation, you know, you have to keep that, you know, decades long history in in context. Yes. I'm sure every single person who's been listening to the podcast for a while is probably like, Brooke, did you just meet your new best friend? <laughs> because the number of times I have said conservation travel and traveling with a purpose for sustaining wildlife, they're probably just like, Brooke, 
this is your new best friend. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not crazy, people. It really is a thing. It, It really does exist, and it has immense power when done correctly, as we're going to dive very deep into and all of the incredible projects that you all have done. And and before we switch gears to that and really start to dive in, not all of us are marine biologists and not all of us know exactly what's going on with sea turtles. So could you take a moment just to educate us more about that? What is going on? Well, maybe even more of the natural history of sea turtles, how many species there are, Sure. Maybe the species you work with, and from a conservation standpoint, what's actually going on with them? Sure, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So worldwide, there are seven species of sea turtles. There's still a little bit of a debate. the 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 black turtle is by considered by most people to be a subspecies of the green turtle. Some some consider it to be an eighth species, but the consensus at the moment is seven species of sea turtles around the world. They've been on the planet for more than a hundred million years. I, th- I remember hearing about, I believe it was in Colombia, a fossil of a you know, 120 million year old ancestor of the current species that are around today. Yeah, so, so yeah, there's the green turtle, the hawksbill, leatherback, olive ridley, camps ridley, loggerhead, and flatback. So those are all the species of sea turtles that you can find in the world. Conservation-wise, you know, the news isn't as bad as some people assume. Mm. And that's I, good. Yeah, personally, I'm pretty optimistic about the future of sea turtles and them being around for a really long time. You know, there's always an assumption that anything related to the ocean is is bad news. I know Jay Nichols likes to tell a story that at one point, marine biologist was like the second least wanted job because, <laughs> because it was so depressing because all the news was, was bad. But the efforts that have been done to protect sea turtles and to restore their populations Going back, I mean, it's gone back, you know, over a hundred years, but in a major way, all around the world, it's really gotten going in the past, you know, 60 or so years. And in that time, you know, the majority of nesting beaches now have people there watching and uh, protecting the turtles that are coming up and making sure that the hatchings are getting into the water. There is some amazing research being done into fisheries and how to reduce the impact of fisheries on sea turtle conservation. If you want to get me going on a tangent, ask me what I thought about uh, sea spiracy. Well, <laughs> let's go on this tangent right now. What did you okay. think about sea spiracy? <laughs> it drove me insane, to be completely honest. It was such a poorly researched movie and with such a transparent agenda for veganism. I personally, I'm a pescatarian. I don't eat meat. I don't eat chicken. I try to only eat fish where I know where it comes from. The whole point of the movie was to try to claim that fishing is the only major impact on the ocean, ocean wildlife. And number one, that's not true. And number two, there has been tremendous progress in improving fisheries. And so I had quite a few debates with people online, Seaspiracy fans who took everything that they put out there as gospel. 
got accused that I was in bed with the seafood industry, which I've never <laughs> taken a penny from the seafood industry. There has been tremendous progress. So for, I'll give you one quick example. The shrimp industry in the United States, most of them now need to use what are called turtle excluder devices, which is a really simple contraption. It's basically an escape hatch at the bottom of the net and a, and a metal grate growing across the net. So the shrimp can pass through the grate and the turtle hits the grate and is forced out this hole in the bottom. One of the great accomplishments of Mary Del Donnelly, who I mentioned from Ocean Conservancy, was one of the main people helping get that through. So most shrimp boats in the United States now require those. And we also passed a law saying we're not going to import shrimp from any country that doesn't also require them. Wow. That saved the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of turtles. And the number of turtles that are caught in fishing gear in U.S. waters has declined substantially in the past 20 or, or 30 years. But the movie used data and studies from 30 years ago that are not the most up to date and made the situation seem much worse than it is. So I don't want to take up too much time with that movie. Oh, propaganda. It's a real thing. I mean, <laughs> a little bit. Talk yeah. about Blackfish in my last episode that I released this past week. And it's a great example. I mean, propaganda is a really a thing. And when you, yeah. and when they pull on heartstrings, it's really yeah. easy to get a rise out of them. Yeah. I mean, it's great that they activated so many people, but I just th thought it was misplaced on how they and how they did it. But anyway, getting back to my point, fishing gear has improved in a lot of places. There's still a lot of problems with it. Still a lot of improvements that need to be made. I have a good friend named Jesse Sanko who's helped create this solar powered light that prevents sea turtles from getting caught in fishing nets that I think has extraordinary potential to save sea turtles around the world. So... Long story short, most of the populations, the majority of populations of sea turtles around the world, so of the seven species, they were broken down into regional management units, which is kind of a you know, complicated term for population. So a certain species in a certain place, the majority of them are growing. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was like two to one. I forget the exact numbers of it, but we're seeing recoveries of sea turtles in a whole bunch of places. In Tortuguero that I mentioned, their nesting is up something like 500% in the 60 years that they've been running it. The best example that I love to give is a project in Mexico in a place called Colola. It's an amazing beach. This is the black turtles, the subspecies of the, the green turtle. So they used to get you know 70 or more thousand nests per year. But the Green turtle is the most popular sea turtle to be eaten. It has the best tasting meat, according to people who eat turtle. And so they were the turtle that was part of like turtle soup, you know, that was mm. such a popular dish all around the world. And so between the turtles getting collected to be shipped abroad and the eggs being eaten, their numbers had declined rapidly. So by the early 80s, uh, some researchers from the University of Michoacan found this beach in this community, this indigenous community, the Nahua people, on the Pacific coast of Mexico, a couple of hours north of like Ixtapas, Iwatanejo, that part of the coast. Um, when they started, they had a few thousand nests. And right around the same time, Mexico outlawed eating sea turtles. They worked for 17 years. By 1999, the numbers had kept dropping. They had their lowest year ever. It was 500 nests from 70,000 to 500. 
So put yourself in, in that situation. Imagine working on a beach for 17 years, trying to you know work with the community, trying to protect as many eggs, getting as many hatchings as you can in the water. And you're down to the point where they're almost gone. And that was right around the time when, when my colleague, Jay Nichols, was getting into his graduate research. And he wanted to work on this turtle. And he had advisors tell him, don't bother. <laughs> they're too far gone. They're not, you're, they're not coming back. Focus on something that there's more hope for. And he didn't take that you know, very seriously. He said, no, I, that makes me want to work with him even more. And so him and you know the these researchers in mexico um, my good friend carlos delgado with the university of michoacan has been working with this project from the start and so yeah imagine 500 nests in 1999 but in 2000 they had you know like a thousand 2001 they had maybe 1500 the numbers started growing and growing and growing now they're back up to almost 50,000 nests again that's yeah. amazing. It's one of the most, <laughs> and it's almost completely unknown. I try to talk about yeah. it as much as I can because it's one of the most inspiring wildlife recovery stories that I've ever heard. Yes. And I've never heard yeah. this either. Yeah. No, it's very, I mean, not even a lot of sea turtle people know a lot. About <laughs> oh my God. And so, yeah, they went from 500 to nearly 50,000 in 20 years, which is a really amazing recovery, especially for yeah. a turtle like the sea turtle where it takes so long to recover but the hatchlings that they were protecting in the early 80s started coming back in the 2000s and now the community is fully on board the the Nawa people are amazing I've taken a couple of tour groups there who had amazing experiences we were releasing thousands of hatchlings at night we would just take baskets of them to the water <laughs> from the hatchery and go back oh more hatchlings okay let's go release more hatchlings and so you know when the communities are involved and the people do the work for long enough, you start to see recoveries. And so that's not the only place we're seeing, maybe not to that quite a scale, but we're seeing recoveries in the places that have been protecting the turtles long enough for those hatchings to start returning as adults. Wow. So in all of that, what would you say then is the biggest conservation issue or the biggest thing that turtles are facing so they are fully recovered, obviously. So something's still happening. What is that something? Yeah, I mean, fishing is still a big issue. A lot of turtles are still getting caught in fishing gear. Illegal hunting is still pretty active in a lot of places, not nearly like it used to, but there's quite a few places where people are still eating turtles. The tortoise shell trade is still a major issue for the hawksbill sea turtle. Mm. That They are one of the two critically endangered species. So I didn't get into this in the previous one, but of the seven species, two are critically endangered, the hawksbill and the Kemp's Ridley. One is endangered, the green turtle. Three are vulnerable, which is the leatherback, the loggerhead, and the olive Ridley. And the flatback is listed as data deficient, which means that there just haven't been enough long-term research to really gauge the the size of the population and how it's growing or declining but they are only found in australia and australia considers them endangered so mm. they're probably endangered so so yeah there's those two issues and then there are the emerging issues so climate change you know sea turtles are not quite polar bear status when it comes to climate change but they're right up there in terms of animals that are impacted by it so rising sea levels are inundating nesting beaches. 
sea turtles, all reptiles are temperature dependent for their sex. So that means when a sea turtle lays an egg in the nest, the sex of that turtle is not yet determined. It's determined by how warm it is in the nest. And so ideally, you want to be right around that pivotal temperature, which if I remember correctly, is around 78 degrees. Warmer will create females, cooler will create males. So you want to have a mix, right? But as beaches are getting hotter from climate change, we're seeing more and more beaches that are finding their hatchings that are skewed female. There was a few years ago, a study in Australia where they took the gender, it's a bit of a complicated procedure. You can't look at a baby turtle and tell if it's male or female, a, an adult turtle you can, but not a hatchling. But they did, they analyzed the gonads of a, a bunch of nests from one season at this beach in Australia. And they found out that 99% of them were female. 99? 99. And now that's not the same at every beach. And there are some measures that you can take. There's a lot of places that when they have hatcheries, which is a little section of beach that they'll block off on the sand, they can shade part of that so that they can try to control the temperature. But yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah, that's a really big problem. That's and a really big problem. There's a reason why, you know, the sexual reproduction system came about. And that is how sea turtles reproduce. We need males. I'm sure there's some females that are like, no, we don't. We do. We need males. There's, <laughs> there's a, a few of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 99%. That is nuts. Yeah, that was a really scary study. So I haven't seen that replicated on many other beaches, but I don't pay a ton of attention to the science because we focus on the conservation side. Plastic sea turtles are probably the poster species for the ocean plastic crisis. Since the video came out of my good friend, Christine Figener, in Costa Rica, where she took a video of a straw being taken out of a turtle's nose. I bet a bunch of your listeners have seen that. It's gone quite viral, has really helped ignite the effort to try to reduce plastic going into the ocean. And so sea turtles, they can eat plastic, they can fuse it for jellyfish, they can get caught in it, they can get stuck in it coming up onto nesting beaches to lay their eggs or as hatchings trying to get into the beaches. Microplastic is a really huge issue. I just reviewed a paper for a friend who's looking at levels of microplastic in nesting beaches because that plastic from the ocean, a lot of it gets broken down and then deposited on the beach in these tiny little particles. And those particles can actually interact with climate change because they can draw heat themselves. So they can make the sand even hotter than it is from climate change. And they also are not only toxic themselves, but they can attract other toxins. So they're super toxic. And so when you have a nest being laid in a beach that is full of microplastic, it's affecting the sea turtles in ways that we're not e we don't even know yet because this research is really just starting to, to now happen. There are other issues, you know, building on beaches, lighting on beaches uh, are problems, people acting like idiots around sea turtles. So the sea turtle selfie thing has become pretty popular on Instagram where people have their selfie sticks and they see a sea turtle in the water and they put the stick in front of the turtle's face and they're 
touching it or they're getting in its way and stressing them out. That's a problem that we're seeing growing. People sitting on turtles. There's sitting been, on turtles? Yeah, there was a... Where did that happen? I know that it happened in Costa Rica. I think believe it happened in Trinidad. It's People want these unique pictures for their social media. And they're not thinking about the animal. They're thinking about, hey, look how cool I am on this turtle. And so, yeah, we're seeing people acting in more stupid ways around these animals. Feeding them is a big problem. You don't want people feeding wild animals, any wild animals, including turtles. So there's a lot of issues that they're facing. But I think there's so many people working around the world in organizations that I I still am hopeful that they will continue to grow and recover. Mm. Goodness. So clearly they're facing a lot of issues like that. That was a long list. But like you said, there is hope. So then let's start turning this to like back to the solutions, which Mm -hmm. obviously your organization is at the forefront of. So let's let's dive a little bit more into sea turtles. First, sea turtles is an SEA turtles. So what does it stand for? Sea turtles. And then let's get to the ecotourism side as well, because this is where it started. Right. So you're this, your organization was born out of ecotourism. So let's get into your programs as well. So your organization, more of what your mission is, and then, then the actual travel side and how it works with sea turtles. Sure. So, so yeah, we're sea turtles, S-E-E turtles, instead of S-E-A turtles. It's a play on words. It, we initially started it as an acronym, but then after a bit, we decided, nah, it's not really an acronym. We're just... <laughs> We're just sea turtles. The acronym was a little redundant. Uh, I just assumed it was an acronym. (laughs) We kept the capitalization and it's a little more mysterious that way. But yeah, sea turtles, seaturtles.org started as a way to support sea turtle conservation through travel. So volunteer tourism and conservation travel. And so when Jay brought the idea to me, it really resonated me with me because I was a volunteer tourist basically with sea turtles and I fell in love with them and it became this career. And so to be able to share that passion that I developed after I learned about them when I first showed up on the beach to help people experience what it's like to release a hatchling to the water, to help measure a six foot, seven foot long turtle and see these giant animals come out into the water or to see them in the water in their natural habitats was just an an extraordinary opportunity. And so we saw sea turtle conservation travel as a tool to protect sea turtles in a couple of ways. One is the volunteer help. Sea turtles are nesting on hundreds of beaches around the world. Some of them are really long Local organizations that run these projects don't have enough funding to hire a ton of people to be walking up and down all the beaches. So a lot of them are very dependent on volunteers to be able to cover the nesting beach because the patrols are generally in most places happening throughout the entire evening. Most places will patrol, you know, eight in the morning till four in the morning or six in the morning. And so that's a lot of beach and that's a lot of people that you need. So we said, all right, we can help create these trips where people can go and volunteer. And again, we weren't the first ones to do this. There were several others, but we were the first ones to really focus on it in this way. And so 
the money that people pay to go and volunteer helps these organizations hire people and to expand their programs, maintain their programs. So there's a financial benefit for the local conservation groups. But we felt that the most valuable part of it would be the income coming into the communities where the sea turtles are. So we really tried specifically to pick places that weren't getting a lot of people already off the normal tourist map type locations to help these communities benefit that weren't benefiting previously from tourism. And so, you know, we think that the money going into the communities can be as valuable or more valuable for protecting sea turtles because of the impact that they have on the community than the money going directly to the conservation programs. And then, you know, the people that go on the trips become conservation ambassadors themselves. We have a whole group of people who go on every new trip that we come up with, that donate, that participate in different things that we do. And so we now have this really great group of, of loyal people that, you know, I think are really sea turtle conservation superstars. I mean, they're not professional conservationists, but they fell in love with these animals like I did and are really doing everything they can with our organization and with others. So we started doing that for a few years, but after a few years, you know, we realized that the market for sea turtle specific tours was probably not huge. We didn't have a very big marketing budget. So we were having somewhat of an impact, but not as big of an impact as we were hoping to have in the places that we were working with. So Jay came up with another idea to expand our organization. He said, what about, let's do something and we'll call it Billion Baby Turtles. And we'll raise funds and we'll figure out how much it costs to save a hatchling. And we'll raise funds and send it to the beaches and help these beaches maintain and grow. And at first I was like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already busy with the tours and I didn't pay much attention to it at first, but it wormed its way in there like a lot of these ideas do. And I was like, you know what, let's give that a try. And so we started out giving out a couple of grants and we asked the groups that we were giving the funds to, we said, how much does it cost you to save a baby turtle? So how many hatchings do you save in an average year? And what's your budget? divide that and come up with a figure. And so we were originally thinking like, can we do it for a dollar? Can we save a hatching for a dollar? And after the first few projects that we started supporting, it turned out to be five hatchlings for a dollar, which was exciting. And, you know, we started out a few years, our first few years we were raising and giving away, you know, 40 to $50,000, which was significant for the handful of projects that we were supporting but we felt like the idea had a lot more potential. Uh, but then a few years ago, something happened. I don't know what, we had just been around long enough. We had built enough of a following where the numbers jumped and we started raising 100,000 or more per year and really started to support quite a few beaches. And with the more beaches, the ones that we brought on, the number of hatchings saved per dollar went up, and now it's 10 hatchlings for every dollar. And the program is growing dramatically. We're bringing on some really fun, new, pretty 
well-known corporate sponsors coming on in this next year. Stay tuned. They're not public yet, but exciting. (laughs) But yeah, this year we have given away over $170,000 to about 40 different beaches around the world. And our estimate is that we have helped save through this funding to these beaches about 1.8 million hatchlings. And we think we could as much as double that again next year. Wow. That's almost yeah. 2 million babies. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. We're still a long way from a billion, but <laughs> we're increasing and we could get there. You know, 10 million could happen. Where are we at right now? We're about 6 million total. 10 million could happen next year. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it's, it's starting to become a really impactful program that we're now supporting projects in 20 different countries and maybe as many as 30 next year. So that, that program we're really excited about. Um, a couple of years after that, I was in Nicaragua doing some work with some local partners there, groups, Paso Pacifico, Fauna and Flora International, that we partner with quite a bit on Hawksbill Conservation, that we provide funding. We were doing teacher workshops with them. And we were walking around the town of San Juan del Sur on the Pacific coast of Nicaragua. And I was trying to buy some souvenirs with my daughter for her friends. And almost every single shop that we were visiting was selling tortoiseshell products. So tortoiseshell is not from a tortoise. It's from the Hawksbill sea turtle. The trade has been going on for over a thousand years. Hawksbill was found in the libraries of ancient Egypt. What? Yeah. So tortoiseshell was actually plastic before plastic was invented because it's a very pliable material and you could shape it into different things that were very useful. And so plastic wasn't invented. You could take the tortoiseshell and and mold it and fuse it and turn it into all kinds of products. And it's a really, the pattern's really beautiful. I mean, everybody knows what the tortoiseshell patterns, gold and brown. and It's a very, very beautiful pattern. And so it was a really, really sought after product to the extent that Hawksbills nearly went extinct because of it. There was a study that came out recently by the Monterey Bay Aquarium where they looked at the trade records of the Hawksbill trade. So it, they looked at from the mid-1800s to the 1990s when the trade, the legal international trade was ended through the CITES Convention, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. In that time, that 150 years, they estimated that something like 9 million hawksbill shells were traded, most of which went to Japan, which had and actually still does have a fairly thriving legal domestic market for tortoise shells. So you can go to Japan right now and walk into a shop and see all kinds of critically endangered hawksbill tortoise shell. They say that the industry there is now working off of a stockpile that they built up of ton, nine, something like 90 tons that they had <laughs> built up before the trade was ended. Yeah. But that was 30 years ago. And so there is some belief in the conservation community 
And there's some evidence to, to back it up that there's at least some illegal hawk's bill still being imported into Japan. But that has left with today the estimates of hawk's bills on the planet. When we count turtles, we count adult females because we can count them on the beaches. And so the estimates that I'm seeing are ranging between 15 and 25,000 adult females. It's probably growing. I'm guessing it's on the higher end because since the end of the Hawksbill trade, we're seeing some pretty significant growth in nesting populations. There are some beaches in Panama that we support with the Sea Turtle Conservancy that have had incredible growth. There's a, a few beaches on the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. They've gone from 50 or 100 nests to over 1,000. So the, the population is starting to recover, but this trade is, is happening on a much bigger scale than I, what I think a lot of other people in the sea turtle community realized was still happening. So that got me to thinking about, all right, well, who are the main market for these products? Travelers. And there wasn't an organization more connected to the tourism world than us. So I said, we're going to take this on. And we started our True Right Aware campaign in 2017. And so that one has made a ton of progress. We're really excited about that campaign. We've put out a couple of global reports. We did. We put out one in April of 2020, which if you're going to put out a big you know, report on something a month into a pandemic is probably the absolute worst time that you can do it. <laughs> we got no media around it at all. But I couldn't, you know, who knew, like the pandemic is still happening. I couldn't just let, you know, the, the data would be obsolete by now if we had waited. But, you know, we found the trade, still evidence of the trade at certain at different levels in 40 countries around the world. 40? 40, yeah. Wow. By eight or 10 where it's happening in, in still a very significant way. So places like Costa Rica, Colombia, Indonesia, China, um, Vietnam. Japan still has their legal industry. So it's a lot smaller than it used to be. And like I said, Hawksville numbers look like they're starting to recover, which is really encouraging. But we're still trying to address the illegal trade of these products. So we put out a guide on how to recognize these products because, you know, when you see one of these products, I have one here I can show you. This was, I actually found this at a friend's house who bought it in Cuba, not knowing what it was. And I looked at it and I said, really? do you know what this is? She said, no. She said, Cade. And I said, yeah, Cade. She's like, Cade. I'm like, Cade, yeah. Cade is Spanish for Hawksville. And she's like, this, like, did her heart just sink? Connection. Yes, she was, she was mortified. But, you know, no judgment. She didn't know. I, I mean, mean that looks, looks nothing like... like that looks no. nothing like a sea turtle. No, you would never suspect that it was. And if you see stuff like this, like I have glasses and I I did this on purpose, you know, they're kind of the tortoiseshell. Right. These are, these are resin or plastic or, or other materials. So we put out ways for people to recognize them. And one of the things that I'm most excited about of the work that we're doing, I met a data scientist who was doing some work at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum named Alex Robillard. And he pitched me a project where we would create some artificial intelligence to, rec to, to recognize photographs of turtles in the water uh, as a way to identify them and study them. And I said, oh, that's a neat idea. I know there's a few groups doing that. Could we do it for tortoise shell? Could we come up with an AI model where you take a picture 
and the model will tell you if it's real or not real. And so I spent maybe a couple of years fundraising for it, finally got the funding, this wonderful foundation called the Bentley Foundation, gave us the money to do it. And we had now we have a phone app and it's going to be ready for public launch soon. We're just putting the final tweaks on. And this app will allow you, if you're walking around a place like Nicaragua or Costa Rica or Indonesia, and you see something, you don't know what it is. You can pull up this app, snap a photo, and with like a 90 or so percent accuracy, it'll tell you if it's real or not. And we this will be the first application of artificial intelligence to identify illegal wildlife products. So we're really excited about it. There's a bunch of other conservation organizations that are really curious about the tech and we're hopeful that it, it can be, that the model can be adapted to other species as well. And it could be used by law enforcement, you know, customs officials or people enforcing laws in the places where these products are being sold. We're hoping that online retailers will use it because these products are still pretty commonly sold on things like Facebook and, and other online platforms. And you know, we've tried to work with Facebook on it a little bit. They've been great at taking stuff down when we point it out, but they haven't been so great on the back end to try to prevent this stuff from being sold in the first place. So we're hoping that some of these retailers will take this model and, and run with it and use it on their end so that we can really take a bite. Because one of the things that we found in the report that we put out is the online trade may be surpassing the in-person trade, and that's a lot harder to regulate. Wow, really surpassing it. So, Could be, I mean, yeah. well, Facebook is notorious in the illegal wildlife trade. Well, I'm sure in a lot of other trades, but I'm just not as in depth in those. Yeah. But I know 100% being in big cat conservation as I am that, I mean, the sell of live animals, dead animals, rhino horn, everything you could name it. Facebook is definitely a big part of. So it's not surprising that yeah. endangered hawksbill sea turtles are also included in that. Yeah, when we put out a report, so we did a section on the online trade and one of my colleagues, Hector Barrios Garrido, was looking at online platforms and finding it. And so we decided, well, instead of finding it and reporting it directly to people we knew at Facebook who would just take it down, so let's try using the Facebook reporting system and say, all right, this is an illegal wildlife product that violates your rules and see what happened. And only something like 10% of them actually did get taken down, which is terrible. And I like to pile on Facebook as much as anybody else. I think there a lot of their practices are anti-democratic and, and really problematic in a lot of ways. But the people on the back end that are forced to deal with these kinds of things that are, that are having to look at these reports, they're not sea turtle people. And so, you know, it's hard for us to expect them to be able to recognize them any better than anyone else. I mean, not even some sea turtle people are good at recognizing what's real and what's faux tortoise shells. So, you know, we understand to a way we, we hope that they become more receptive at using this stuff on the back end because they haven't been so far, but we'll see. Right. Because didn't you say that right now there, it's literally impossible to tell a faux from a real other than like a, like a plastic version, like melting it or something like that is right. It's, it's, am I remembering correctly? 
if you have a trained eye, you can you can get pretty good at it. I think I'm pretty good at it now. Alex is also pretty good at it. We've we've had people test us and send us, you know, some, and we've been able to to get most of them right. There's certain patterns and things. So something that's mass produced in plastic that's faux tortoise shell will be won't be quite as random patterns. And so there are some ways that you can look at it and, and get a good sense. But the only way to know 100% is, yeah, it's a hold a lighter up to it. And if it melts, it's plastic. And if it doesn't, it's keratin. This is what sea turtle shell is. It's keratin. It's the same thing in our hair. And it's just a lot thicker. But you, if you're a tourist walking around some place you can't be pulling out a lighter and start lighting people <laughs> someone's shop <laughs> yeah they're not going to take that very well with good reason so yeah so we're really excited about this this tech and so yeah we're hoping to launch it early 2022 oh my gosh well i mean we're recording this on december 17 2021 so that is literally right around the corner yes <laughs> Yeah, March at the latest, I think, but we still have oh a few more gosh. tweets. That is so yeah. exciting. Yes. Do you think that this tech, I mean, I know it's not even out yet, so this might not even be a fair question to ask, but do you think it would be applicable to like other keratin products like rhino horn or, I mean, is bone even a thing or I'm just like anything to help save cats, I'm like all about. So I'm like, is there a way to save <laughs> tiger bone and lion bone? <laughs> maybe i mean bone probably not right, um, right. bones bone <laughs> it, there has to be it's sort of a distinguishable pattern i think there's potential maybe for pangolin oh I think pa okay. pangolin could could be done in that way we've had a number of people ask about ivory and the problem with ivory because there's elephant ivory walrus ivory mammoth ivory that's dug up from yeah, there's quite a bit of that. Really? Because, yeah, fossilized, maybe not even fossilized, but mammoths that died, you know, the hundreds of thousands of years ago, their, their ivory is still intact. And so that can be found in places like Russia. And then that stuff is sold. And so once it's carved into something, the only way to tell ivory, elephant ivory from walrus or other types is by looking at the underlying bone structure, from what I understand not an elephant person, but I don't think you can look at the surface and take a mm. picture and distinguish, unfortunately. But I think with ones where it, there are patterns in the shells and, and keratin type things like pangolins, maybe. I know Alex is very interested in talking to some organizations about the potential for replicating this model for other species. So hopefully we, we don't know for sure yet, but we would love it if it you know, became a tool for the entire illegal wildlife trafficking field. Yeah. We're going to circle back on that after we get offline, by the way, because I have a project <laughs> that I'm going to be working on soon that I might have to like, okay. we're going to chat. We're going to chat. Sure. <laughs> and everybody knows on the podcast that if whatever I'm talking about right now becomes to fruition, they're going to hear about it. So you're not out of the loop. The loop doesn't exist yet, but we're going to come. We're going to chat. Okay. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so exciting. Because also too, just to feel empowered as a tourist. I mean, even me going abroad, and I like to think that I am a well-traveled, in-the-know tourist. But I mean, this past 
November was my first time to Costa Rica. I've never walked into any of those shops. I don't know what's there. I don't know what I should be looking for or shouldn't be looking for other than from just my general knowledge being in the field. You know, if something looks like it might be an animal product and ask further questions. But I mean, I don't know. If I go to Africa, yeah, I'm, I'm well more indoctrined in that sort of field. So this tool could completely change the way people travel. And also too, imagine, oh my God, well, I know you imagine this is your project, but <laughs> what it will do for the trade. Like, God, this might be like a missing link to help empower people that are just ignorant, that just don't know any better. I mean, I wouldn't know, especially if yeah. something's painted or something. I mean, I could be accidentally buying something ivory that I thought was just faux bone or something. So, oh my God. Yeah. Can't wait to stay up on that. Yeah. Although the one of the personal downsides to it is that I am now ruined for souvenir shopping whenever <laughs> I travel because my eye immediately starts looking for these products. <laughs> Even in places where I know it, it isn't there, I immediately yeah. start like looking like, okay, I mean, no, no, no. I'm actually trying to buy something. They don't sell it here. Like in Mexico, it's really not sold anywhere that I that I've been able to gather, which is really exciting and encouraging. But I still, I'm walking around South of Mexico and I'm still like, where is it? Where is it? There, no, no. Yeah. It's like you're doing the right thing and I'm doubting you. I apologize, <laughs> but I have to double check. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I just buy it. I just bought like so much coffee in Costa Rica. I mean, my whole family. Luckily, this is coming out after Christmas. So they will know, they will already know their Christmas gift, but it's all chocolate and coffee. So <laughs> <laughs> well, they have great both of those. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I did want to take a second, just really fast, to go back to a baby, a billion baby sea turtles. Mm -hmm. And for anybody that is creating a project similar or might have a similar idea or just really wants to do something big on a big scale and get corporate sponsors, why do you think that this project is doing so well? It's a great question. The, I think the whole structure of it, the way that it was done right from the start was very corporate sponsor friendly because as we were discussing earlier, corporations now feel pressure to show how good citizens they are and more and good. more companies. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. More and more companies are incorporating philanthropy and what we call cause marketing into their products. So I'm sure people have seen the examples of, you know, this t-shirt will help plant a tree or, you know, this, this bracelet will help clean up plastic from the ocean. So that wasn't happening quite as much when we launched Billion Baby Turtles, but it is happening more. So I think that's part of why it's growing and the growth that we're seeing in the, the funding for Billion Baby Turtles is mostly from corporate partners, but getting as concrete as possible about the impact. So when a company gives us a dollar for every t-shirt they sell, and they can say they're saving 10 baby turtles, and we can back it up. We put everything online. We're super transparent about it because I also want to warn people that see these claims that they're not always true. We're seeing a lot of copycats, a lot of fraud, especially there's a lot of bracelets that say track your own sea turtle. 
and yeah, you buy it and then they send you this link where you can follow the satellite transmitter of a sea turtle somewhere in the world. Well, that program that tracks the sea turtles, you can track them for free. You can just go and see where they are. But there are companies that are claiming that they're supporting the research with the sales. So I would just caution everybody to try to check out these claims before just I'm automatically believing. We've seen a lot of people, unfortunately, get especially like on Instagram scammed. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that, but you know we have on our website every single grant that we've given, how many, how much money we've given, how many hatchings have been saved, and links to those organizations. So when you see companies making the claim, but they're not saying who it's going to, they're not providing much details, they're not linking to them, they're not tagging them when they post on social media. Those are the kinds of things to look out for. But I think that's one thing is just a real simple, clear message, and you know, the whole thing around charismatic megafauna getting all the attention and getting all the funding. And it's true. Pandas and tigers and, and everything are very um, adorable and charismatic. And it does lead to more funding for them. Sea turtles sell themselves, especially the little baby ones. Just a quick, funny anecdote. One time I was meeting with a potential corporate sponsor with my colleague Jay Nichols, and they said, well, you know, we we like to showcase the animals on our products, but, you know, we like the furry ones, you know, the cute ones. <laughs> and, and we kind of sat there for a second and Jay said, well, you know, the whole science of cuteness has really been broken down and it's really a relationship of the size of the eyes to the size of the head and he proceeded to launch into this whole explanation of what cute is and how it is actually measured and he said and if you look at the baby sea turtle they fit that exactly they are you know they're the exact disney level of cute <laughs> And the person kind of sat there for a minute and was like, oh, I never thought of a reptile as something that could be cute. But you saw, kind of saw the ear, the wheels turning and and that eventually ended up becoming a, a sponsor for us. I don't want to say their name because I don't want to embarrass <laughs> anybody, but it was it was absolutely like I held it in. But after the after the meeting, I just cracked up, I was like, you you're the only person on Earth that I know that could break down the, the science of cuteness and use it as a way to convince someone. But <laughs> You know, see, yeah, I think as concern for the oceans have grown, the concern about the plastic issue has grown, you know, sea turtles as a flagship species, as an ambassador species for the issues that the ocean and the environment are facing has grown. And so I think those two things combined have really helped us to start to gain some traction with billion baby turtles. So not every animal that people are going to work with is as cute, but the more concrete that you can make it, the better. And, you know, right now in 2021, if you're not also addressing the communities that are impacted by conservation, you shouldn't even bother because, you know, th that's no longer, and this has been really great to see, that it's no longer something that you can do in our field is, is try to protect an animal at the cost of the people that are living around them. 
so that would be my advice is, you know, try to make the impact as clear as possible. Mm. Oh my gosh, that was so good. And I love that you brought up the community part because there's an actual another guest that I interviewed for the same Costa Rica series who's doing Jaguar work in Costa Rica. And we talked a lot about that, how I feel that as our collective generation becomes, we're getting older, which I don't mind because now we're finally getting in power. And we see this, there's starting to be a wave of engaging as many people as possible. And a lot of people that were left out of the conversation from the get go, just as you said, you know, as just the way it used to be, we can't blame, I, I, I hate blame so much. It's just like, it is what it is. Let's move forward. We know what it was. It was bad. Let's keep moving forward. And now there's this big movement of, no, these people live here. This is their community. This is their wildlife. We have to engage them. They have to be a part of this process. They are a stakeholder in this and they need to be a part of the conversation. So I completely love that you bring that up and that is really great advice. So the, the more, the further I get in my career and I've had multiple guests on conservation is managing people. It is managing relationships with people yes. and how we view wildlife. And it is, <laughs> the more I get into it, I'm like, yeah, I love big cats, but at the end of the day, am I doing anything with big cats? Not really. Other than when I just decide to hop on a plane and go to India or Nepal <laughs> to go see tigers, you, you, just because I want to, to keep my soul alive. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, it's just managing people. And I'm sure that you've seen all of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I saw my first leather back in years this past summer in, in Costa Rica when I was able to travel a little bit during the during the brief lull there in the pandemic. So yeah, I hadn't seen them in years. And and so it was really wonderful to be able to see that. But no, I, I really, really loved seeing how the Black Lives Matter and the racial justice protests really forced the conversation in every facet of life in every community to really look in on itself and say, are we really trying to do something or are we just, you know, putting a black square on our Instagram page for, for a couple of days and using the, the Black Lives Matter hashtag. And so seeing things like the Sierra Club and the Audubon Society who were created by people who were you know, slave owners or had some really problematic views about race to now where you know, I'm seeing conservation organizations embrace intersectionality and really trying to empower people that have not been able to get into this field. Conservation is has not been a, a very inclusive field. And I am seeing some positive steps towards that. So you were asking about our programs. One of the things that we got inspired to do during that whole time was you know, we want to help make the sea turtle community more inclusive. And we want to try to help build some of the capacity in the communities where the turtles live. Because even now, there are a handful of sea turtle projects that were started by and run specifically by people within the community. But by far, the majority of them are still 
run by, managed by either international organizations. We don't run any ourselves. We don't want to be the people going into and telling people how to protect their turtles. That's why we're focusing on existing community-based organizations or community-focused. But, you know, even a lot of the ones that are based in the same country, you know, the head offices in the capital. And so there are there aren't a lot of examples like that. I think it's growing, but not, I think quickly enough. So we started a fund. We're actually putting now 5% of what we raised through Billion Baby Turtles into this inclusivity fund, we're calling it. And that is providing scholarships for disadvantaged communities and for members of the communities where the sea turtles are so that they can study, they can get field work experience so that they can become leaders in the field and truly manage programs locally. So that's another one that we launched this year that we're excited about. We had our first round of grants to women in Costa Rica. We provided grants for them to do field work and also a young man in Venezuela that we're providing some funding and we're going to be doing our next round of grants coming up here pretty soon. But it's really fun seeing as Billion Baby Turtles grows, that fund will also grow. And we see it as a way of of giving back to the communities that have been impacted by the conservation efforts. Oh, wow. That's Oh, God. I really hope that more organizations follow suit because that is amazing. And is this just focused? This is for my own knowledge. Is is this grant system for local people only or is this also for maybe like disenfranchised groups that want to come into wildlife conservation around the world or who who can apply for this to be a part of this system or not system, but the scholarship program? So, yeah, initially we had it open to anyone in the world. With the first one, we had a handful of applications. We had some really good people that we supported, but it's it's still evolving and we haven't yet exactly figured out what the criteria for the next round is going to be. But where we're leaning towards is focusing specifically on as much as possible members of disadvantaged communities. So either black communities, indigenous communities, or other communities of, of color, disadvantaged communities within the places that they live and supporting members from those communities, you know, where the sea turtles are. So I don't think we're going to open it up to you know, U.S. and Europe in this next round. And I think what we're probably going to do is work directly with the 40 or 50 organizations that we support through Billion Baby Turtles and say, all right, who have you guys that we already know, that we trust, that we've worked with, who of you have people in your communities that you want to help study or create new jobs for? So I think that's the direction that we're going to go. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we had a really great advisory board of people that are wonderful and, and you know, really out in front on this issue. And so they helped us develop the criteria and helped make the selections of those folks. And so it was really great to have people's help within that because it's a challenge for me. I don't, you know, as a, as a white man, you know, I know that I have my subconscious upbringing and and privilege and context that I grew up in. So we brought in people who, you know, have gone through these challenges and they made the criteria, they made the decisions. And so, yeah, we like that. We like that direction. I, I want to put the people who 
have lived this reality in charge of, of making these decisions. Oh, I just thought that just shows that your heart is in the right place because I also feel just like you said, there's so many organizations that are just doing hashtag black lives matter or support native Americans or support local communities. But it's, it's just another form of greenwashing. They're not actually believing in that. And you're like, no, I, I believe in this so much that I don't even want to be a part of this, like the decision-making process. Like I am aware enough that I shouldn't be, you should be. And that is so inspiring as a leader. I mean, as a leader of an organization like this, it's been around for a long time. Like, gosh, I really hope that if anyone's listening is a head of an organization or know somebody, or maybe if you just be like, Hey, listen to Brad here. Cause like, I want to do something similar <laughs> in my organization, but like, you like just need to listen to this conversation and just hear where he's coming from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say don't necessarily listen to me. I would say, listen to the leaders in the intersectional environmentalism movement. There are some great groups like Black and Marine Science. That's where two of the three advisors came from, Carly Jackson and Alex Troutman, who looked them up on Twitter. They're really, really inspiring people who are really at the forefront of this. And, you know, if you're going to bring someone like these folks on, pay them. Don't ask them to do it for free. (laughs) Because conservation and nonprofits tend to do that. We try to get as much free work as we can. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm paying you what you deserve for your time. But yeah, I think it's about, you know, bringing in the people who are experts in this field and really taking a hard look at yourself, your history, your the makeup of your board, the makeup of your staff. You know, we're an organization right now of, you know, primarily one person, it's me, but I am, you know, I we do have a fairly diverse board and I'm hoping to bring on some some new staff from the places where we're we're working. So, you know, we're we still have a long way to go ourselves, but you know, we feel like we've started the process and are helping others, you know, kind of move along that process as well. Yeah. One foot in front of the other. It's like first just recognizing and then going forward, which I absolutely love this. And I just love having a platform to talk about these things openly and you being so willing and open to talk about this stuff as well. It's just like, wow, I see an issue that needs addressed. Let's find a way to do it. Let's make this more inclusive. Let's make the whole conservation field more inclusive and where our work is. I just, there's, there's too much work to be done for it only to be being done by a small sliver of society. We need, we need everybody. And there's so much talent out there and people that haven't been able to break into this field. You know, like I said, I feel very lucky and privileged to have been able to, you know, live at home and deliver pizza. I had a car where I didn't have any expenses and I could save up enough money to go and volunteer. But a lot of people, that's not an option for them. And so to get started in the sea turtle field, to be able to do field work, you know, a lot of people can't afford to just go and spend 800 bucks on a, you know, airfare and work for free for six months. So I think that's a big part of, you know, making it more inclusive is opening those kinds of opportunities up for, for people who can't necessarily, you know, who don't have the advantages that I did when I was getting into this field. Yes. Yes. And hopefully as every year, year after year, we will continue to see these developments and 
striving in the right foot in the right direction and moving forward in that way. So I absolutely love it because I'm seeing it as well. And I was like, I want to talk to as many people that don't look like me as possible. I don't want you to look like me because your life story is different than mine. And I need your ideas because I'm stuck. So what have you gone through? And let's let's all sit down at the table together and put all of our ideas together and see if we can come up with a solution. And the more diverse people are around that table, the better. Because the number of creative ideas that will come out of that think tank is pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So I would love to switch gears a little bit. Okay. So... We have listed a ton of incredible highlights that you have done over the past, I don't know, one to two decades, which is amazing. And so surely there has been some ups and downs along that as well. So would you mind maybe sharing with us maybe some things or maybe multiple things that have been difficult in your journey? and how you overcame them, or if there is some other things that you're currently going through. But yeah, I know I would love to hear that. Just hearing how many successes you've had. I'm sure that there's been some bad times too. Yeah, absolutely. There have been, you know, things are going really great now. You know, our organization is growing. We're starting new programs. We're dramatically increasing our impact, but it, yeah, it has not been a smooth ride. So I'll give uh, one example of, you know, a not so great moment in my career after I had done some field work in Costa Rica, I was very enthusiastic, maybe over enthusiastic to start my own thing. I really wanted a project myself. And so I had had a friend there who was working for the company that had helped set me up as a volunteer in the first place. And he was leaving that company and starting his own new thing. And he was buying a little property on the Caribbean coast where there was a nesting beach. And he was going to start bringing student groups there and working with the turtles and doing some organic farming, which, you know, I have, I'm a big fan of and really enjoy. And I jumped in with both feet, but he was not a trustworthy individual and I did not do as much due diligence as I should have before jumping in on this thing with him. And I uh, invested some family money that I had a few thousand, not a, not a ton, but a really significant amount of money for me at the time to buy this property and I was so excited about starting this new program, but then I started hearing whispers about this guy and the things that he was doing. And eventually I, it came to light that where we bought that property, in fact, I just visited the last time I was there in Costa Rica, I was like, oh yeah, I, I sort of own part of this <laughs> and was actually on the beach that was had a sea turtle project run by somebody else and he was pretending like it was going to be his project and I wasn't aware of that and now I work with that project take people to groups like my tour groups go and visit that other project that I thought I was going to be working at on this beach and so I backed out I managed to get a little bit of the money back but it was a real big lesson for me in trusting people and you know, just really thinking things through before 
jumping in um, with both feet. So that was a pretty, pretty bad mistake that I made. When we launched Sea Turtles, I mentioned that when we publicly launched shortly after was the Great Recession. And so not many people were traveling at that point. Everybody was really scared about the economy. And that made it really difficult to try to encourage people to go and travel to see sea turtles. And that required some pivoting where we instead used some of the money that we had to help provide some funding for some of these projects. And we said, all right, we're in this for the long haul. We have enough money to, you know, cover our salaries and everything. We'll be okay with that. But let's build a, a good-sized social media network. Let's go and make contacts in the tourism industry and go to the events and and start building a, a foundation instead of just trying to, you know, run before we could walk with the trips. And I think that emphasis at that point has served us now in the long term that we have, you know, for our size of our organization, we have a pretty big social media following over 100,000 on all the various feeds and everything that we have. And I think that's a, a pretty big part of our success now. And so, yeah, no, there were years where I took second jobs. I was teaching a class on ecotourism at the at a local community college here in Portland, Oregon, where I live. I did consulting work, you know, doing grant writing and other things and years where it was lean. There were years where I wasn't sure where my next month's salary was going to come from. And it was challenging in my family life. It was, it's, it's hard to focus on the day to day if you don't even know if you're going to be able to pay your mortgage or for food or for your daughter's school things like that. So there have definitely been lean years. I mean, the pandemic is a great example. We were, we had been ramping up and hoping to really start growing in a, in a significant way, our travel program, because it's now, you know, it's become a, a smaller part of what we do, but I still think it has great potential and can help fund the rest of our programs. And then the pandemic hit and all of our trips got canceled and we were really fortunate in a couple of ways. We got some of the those forgivable government loans. We got two of those, which helped get us through. Some amazing person, I still don't know who, sent us an anonymous check for $20,000, which wow. first time that ever happened in my conservation career. And some family made some, some donations. My sister made a really big donation that helped carry us through, I took a big pay cut and I started looking elsewhere. I mean, this is my dream job. I hope to not ever do anything else, but I started to put resumes out there for other jobs. And when that anonymous donation came in and when the PPP loan came in, I said, all right, this is enough to survive. Let's pivot. I did my own podcast for a little bit, not quite as <laughs> successful as Rewildology, but it was fun and kind of an experimental thing. We did some webinars. We've made some advances on online fundraising. We started the scholarship program. And then our most recent program, which we haven't talked about much, but we also now have a new program around sea turtles and plastic that we can get into more. But yeah, there was a point there where I was really thinking about you know, do I need something more 
stable, but, you know, we stuck with it. Uh, and, you know, this is big. 2021 has been our best fundraising year ever. Wow. Really exciting. And now we're starting to get into the world of donations from cryptocurrency and NFTs and things, which I think has almost limitless potential. It's, I've never seen anything like this in the 20 years that I've been fundraising for conservation, the amount of money that's being generated in such a quick amount of time. It may be a flash in the pan, but we're hoping to at least ride that wave and get some donations and use it to, to grow the organization. We're bringing some people on to help with a few different areas of our work. And I think that, you know, we could as much as double in size next year because of that. But, you know, just a year ago, I wasn't sure what was going to happen with the entire organization. Wow. <laughs> we're here now. We're here in December of 2021. And on that note, too, and this next question is a pretty deep one. And I want to ask this because I absolutely know that a lot of us are going to go through some pretty big hardships in our life. And you mentioned ex-wife. I don't want to go into why, but what I really want to know is how you were able to keep going forward in something so personal in your life. Because I know that all of us are probably going to go through something similar where maybe we have a really critical death in the family or maybe we lose someone that's really important to us. How do you how did you keep going in something that probably was a really painful? Yeah, it certainly was. That was five or six years ago when that happened. And professionally, it was tough because we met and built our careers in the sea turtle world and have a lot of shared friends. She has since moved on, is not working in this field anymore, but that made things even more challenging in some ways. But it was really challenging with our daughter. She's now about to turn 20, but she was you know, a young teenager at the time. And so it was really challenging for her. And honestly, I think my job in some ways really helped save me and, and mm. get me through, you know, being, having a job that I enjoy so much, one that allows me to travel. I get to lead several trips a year and focusing on something that was able to provide some fulfillment for me during that really challenging time. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I would have survived anyway, no matter what job that I did, but really diving into the work, I think was a really healing thing for me. And, you know, I've met someone new that's absolutely incredible. She came with me to Costa Rica and we had the most amazing trip. And it's really fun, you know, sharing this world with, with somebody new now. But, but yeah, it was, it was tough. Yeah, thanks for exploring that with me. I knew that would be a, <laughs> a touchy question, but right. it's, it's reality. It's what all of us are probably going to experience in our conservation career. And maybe not that specifically, but something that might take us away from our work. And so like, how do you get through that from somebody who is persevering so well 
as you are in sea turtles. And so I just wanted to ask that little question just in case maybe one day, maybe someone's going through this. One of my really close friends who is in this world is currently going through a divorce and just watching what it's doing to her is really heartbreaking. And so to hear that, like, you can still go on, you still can persevere is there is hope at the end of the tunnel. So, <laughs> so thank you for exploring that with me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, there, there is definitely hope. And, you know, I think one of the positive things that can come out of a traumatic experience like a divorce is, you know, looking at your life and reevaluating and taking a step back to see, all right, is the job that I'm doing what I want to do with my career? Do I want to do something that I'm more passionate about? Is this maybe the time to do it? I've, you know, a couple of people that have, have gone through that kind of transformation and are, you know, much happier now that they're in different situations and, and use that opportunity to reflect and make changes in their lives. Yeah, sometimes you just need a shake up. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, okay. So we can we can get away from the deep topics. <laughs> I would love to hear. Do you have a particular crazy or wild story that has happened on a trip of yours or in the field in some way that you could share? I would love to hear it. Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I'm sure you have lots. <laughs> I mean, nothing too out of the out of the ordinary has happened on the trips. I mean, I think they're pretty fun and 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 transformational in their own right. But I would say that I've had some pretty fun or intense field experiences. I remember one night on the first beach that I was working at, the one that I mentioned that was between Puerto Viejo and Cahuita on Costa Rica's Caribbean coast. We were out patrolling with my ex-wife. She was leading the actual patrol with a couple of volunteers looking for turtles. And I, whenever we had a chance to take people out onto the beach, I would play tour guide and take them out and, you know, explain all the nesting and everything. And it was a way for us to make a little extra money because I spent all my pay on airfare. <laughs> and so we were, we were both out walking on the beach separately. And I got a call from her on the radio. There was a, a river about halfway down the nesting beach. And when the rains were up, you couldn't really cross it. And so that would be the end of where we would patrol. And she was there and she spotted some people that were sitting on the beach eating turtle eggs. And she saw their boat had come in from the river. They had come in kind of the back way to this beach. And so generally it's not a dangerous thing to do being out on the beach working, but when it's the first year of the program and people aren't used to it yet. And if you're, you know, working on a beach that people were previously taking eggs from, and now you're there, you know, to prevent them from doing it, it can cause some conflict. And so, but that was the first night and probably the only night that whole season that we actually saw somebody out on the beach. And so she radioed to me as we we're walking down the beach 
and she said there's these people you know that are, that are eating eggs on the beach and so we swapped positions and i ended up at the river mouth because you walk up and down the beach looking for the turtles and she said all right i'm gonna go to the payphone if you remember what a payphone is <laughs> and we didn't have cell phones there at this time this was 2000 and so she went to call the police who had initially been patrolling with us because of the the potential risk quick you know off ramp from that the first couple of nights the police patrolling with us on the beach was actually pretty funny because they came with big guns and heavy boots (laughs) and they're walking with us miles on the beach and they're sweating and they're hot and and they're like oh god this is they weren't used to it. It's it's quite challenging work if you're not used to long miles walking in the sand. The next night they came and they had pistols and they had sneakers, <laughs> shorts. They were much better prepared after that. But after a few weeks, they decided, all right, that's that's too much work for us to to also be, you know, to do our regular police work. So they stopped doing that, but we knew them. So she called them. And so to make sure they got away, we were taking a break at the end of the beach with the tour group. And I said, I'm going to go over here and, you know, and, you know, do my business or whatever. And I went over and I pushed the boat off. Oh, my God. So, they <laughs> so that they didn't have an escape. And so I pushed the boat. The boat didn't disappear. It kind of stayed in this area, but then they couldn't get to it quite so easily. And I came back and the travelers were like, what what like yeah you know tried to like not not make a big deal of it but the police did come and they they got them and i think they got off with a warning but that was kind of the most intense night that we had on the beach and there was another night on this same project we were walking down the beach and we were with this costa rican guy named henry who patrolled with us And way down the beach, we saw a bunch of white lights on the beach. So most sea turtle nesting beaches, you'll see people use red lights because the turtles don't pick up the red color when they are up nesting. So it's not disturbing for them. But a white light potentially can bother a sea turtle, make them go back out to the water before nesting, whatever. And so we saw these white lights way down the beach. We knew there weren't any other patrollers. So we knew it was people probably taking a nest or taking a turtle. So he and I picked up our speed and we just went as fast as we could. We weren't running, but we were like power walking down the beach. And after a little while, the light stopped. And from a distance, this is probably, you know, three, four miles away. No idea exactly where it was. By the time we got there to where we thought it had been, we couldn't find anybody, couldn't find any evidence of anybody. And we turned around to look you know, to see how far we had gone. And the lights from the town near where we were staying were way off, the, <laughs> way off in the distance. The sun was starting to come up. We were like, let's go out to the road and catch a ride <laughs> back, back because it would have, it, just on a normal walking pace, it probably would have taken three, four hours to get back. Oh my gosh. And what we, and what we did in maybe an hour, hour and a half. So that was probably the most exhausting night I ever had out on the beach. But it's a really lovely experience, you know, being out in these rural areas. The stars are amazing. You learn the constellations. You have these great conversations with people. 
while you're waiting for the turtles to come up and then we haven't really talked about this much, but just the experience of being with a sea turtle, mm. I think is a really, really amazing thing. And I want as many people to be able to do it as possible. Part of Jay Nichols work is he put out this book called Blue Mind. And it's all about how your brain and your body react when you're in the water, on the water, looking at water, the hormones that are released. It puts your brain into this trance-like, meditative, creative state. And it's really just healthy. Having healthy waters and access to healthy waters is healthy for your brain. It's healthy for your body. And one of the things that he's saying all the time is that we don't appreciate that enough in the work that we do. And so being able to go and release a, a baby hatching to the water, it's good for your brain. It's good for your body. It's good for your mental and physical health. And it's this incredible experience. He uses the example, Michael J. Fox talks about a, a story he wrote in his uh, autobiography when he was on, I forget, the last TV show that he was on when the Parkinson's was really starting to take over his body and he was not sure what to do. He was in the Virgin Islands and he hopped in the water and he's swimming around and he sees a sea turtle and he just sits there and watches this sea turtle and it creates this whole cascade of emotions and things in his brain and he comes out of the water and he tells his wife i'm done with tv and that's when he made the pivot from tv to working on parkinson's full-time coming and telling the world that he had it and so he credits seeing a sea turtle in the wild for changing his life and by extension the lives of millions of people that he's helped through through his charity and we've seen it happen we've had you know, teenagers go on trips and I now see them at the International Sea Turtle Symposia because they've decided to make it their career. And so, you know, even if it's not with us, I always want to say go somewhere where there are turtles, watch the nesting process, the way that they, that these females dig the nests out, they take their back flippers and very rhythmically and methodically dig one at a time, one and then the other and then the other. And it's this beautiful thing to watch, watching the eggs drop, watching them cover the nest and then going back out into the water. I think everybody should have this experience. So we're, if you're ever in a place where they are, go see them because it might not completely change your life, but it'll be something that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, it's definitely high on my list as well. I have not had that wildlife phenomenon yet. And oh, I yeah. happen to be in Costa Rica at the wrong time of year, only because my birthday falls at the wrong time of year. It's like the <laughs> one time to not see them. I'm just like, ah, but well, we will get you to a sea turtle project. The next time you travel, you let me know and I will put you in touch with whoever's there nearby. Sounds great, Brad. I am so down. I need to see them. And then also, yeah, meet meet the amazing people that you know and see how I could share their story as well, of course. Of course, because yeah. that's what we do here. <laughs> yes. Yes, and you see, like I said, you see a transformation in the communities too when you go to a place 
that always looked at sea turtles as something to eat and you're this you know person coming from thousands of miles away spending thousands of dollars just to go to their community to see the turtles that nest on their beach it helps kind of change the perspective of the animal in in people's eyes as well and you know, we've seen that transformation happen in a number of places yeah absolutely i mean i don't know if this qualifies or is applicable to Costa Rica specifically, but, you know, in lots of places of the world, the best guides were poachers, the best guides, the best naturalists, the best trackers, the best people you want at camp were the ones that used to snare them, that used to shoot them, that used to, you know, put them on the bush meat market. Like it's, it's true when that shift happens and then you can use those skills for good for protecting that species versus consuming them in some way. Oh, it's, it's a magical thing. Oh yeah. And I would, I would even go a little bit further and I would say that's especially true in the sea turtle world. And I would Mm. go, I would even go a bit further to say that not only are they the best guides, they're the best conservationists because almost every project that I was involved with in Costa Rica and I'd say probably the majority of ones that we, that we support and work with around the world the most dedicated people on their staff are the people that grew up eating sea turtles, eating their eggs, because exactly that. They know their habits. They know where to find them. They know how to deal with them. They know how to find the nests better than anybody. <laughs> as, a, as a gringo going to Costa Rica, and if we miss a turtle and try to find that nest afterwards, because they can, especially the leatherbacks, can really, they toss the sand in a really big area. So it can be hard to find the actual nest within that. And I know folks that were conservationists that, that grew up looking for the eggs and finding them to sell or to eat them. Oh no, it's right over there. And they find it right away. And I would spend a half an hour poking around in the sand and have absolutely no chance at it at all. Like they were way better at it than I was. That's why I figured I was like, all right, I can write grants, I can fundraise and I can market you guys do the actual protecting <laughs> on the beach and I'll help you do that because you're better at it than me. So I'll do what I'm good at so you can do what you're good at. <laughs> that is so good. Yeah. yeah. It's like, we'll all stay in our lanes and yes. we'll all support each other. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've met a few, you know, Americans and stuff that have gotten pretty good at finding nests, but no, there's nothing like someone who grew up doing it. There's <laughs> right. just <a> comparison. <laughs> They've been doing it since they were walking. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I love to ask this because I never know what someone's going to say, but what advice would you love to share with anybody listening or a particular message? If there's just one thing that anybody listening could take away, what would you want that one thing to be? I mean, I've always tried to live by the philosophy of go try it go go do it i used to live a mile from the nike campus maybe that's sinking in (laughs) a, a little bit but you know i know a lot of people who think for years and doubt and that's not the right time and it's you know when when we started sea turtles i didn't know if there was any market for it i didn't know if there was anyone was gonna give money to help start it. I didn't know if anyone was going to want to go on a trip. It was a leap of faith. And 
I said, let's try it. And so every program that we have is something that we said, oh, who knows if it will work? Who knows, baby, baby turtles? I don't know. Let's give it a shot. Curator wear, sure. And, you know, we have had programs that weren't successful. We've tried to do this thing called See the Wild, which was taking the concept of sea turtle conservation travel and expanding it to other species and having a, a project where we promoted tiger tourism and bears and sharks and whales and all these things. And it didn't work. Maybe we weren't the right people to do it. I still think the idea was good, but we didn't, we weren't successful at it, but we tried. And so when it didn't work, we said, all right, let's go back to focusing on sea turtles and you know, starting expanding from there. You know, the my podcast didn't work out. You stuck with it. It's you're going great. You're it's your ten thousand download, and you're wonderful at it. You have a much better podcast personality than than I do. But you know, we we tried, we experimented, and and didn't worry about failing. And so that's the biggest thing: is don't don't talk yourself out of trying something, even if you get people that are skeptical. You know, we've had plenty of skeptical people about our work and our programs and things. But if you, if you believe in it and you can get other people to believe in it, give it a try and you never know what you can accomplish. Couldn't have said that better myself. That was so good. <laughs> so good. I mean, you're a good example of it, right? You had to pivot during the pandemic and, and, you know, look where, look where you've gotten to 60 yeah. episodes. You said, yeah, almost. You might be number 60. We'll see what order these fall in. But yeah, we're almost there, which is unbelievable. Which, yeah. I mean, I'm I did not. Four and I was like, I <laughs> <laughs> oh, I started with like all the people I knew in my network. So I didn't start interviewing people I didn't know until we were a couple few episodes in. So Maybe that's why it lasted a little longer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to put in one quick plug here for Rewildology okay. folks. If anyone is new to the podcast, go go look back and look for the one with Sheridan Simano from Reefs to Rockies. Sheridan is the one that uh, connected me with you. She's on our board of directors, Reefs to Rockies. I have told her, and the reason that I asked her to join my board, I think is one of the best examples of a tour operator focused on wildlife and conservation that's out there. They've been super active in all of our programs. And I learned a bunch about Sheridan that I didn't know before. So, you know, dig back into the archives a little bit and, and find her episode as well, because she was a lot of fun. You guys went birding together. We did. We met at her favorite birding spot outside of Boulder, Colorado. It was Wonderful. She's an amazing human. And as this Costa Rica series gets put together, I went through Reefs to Rockies. She's the one that put my trip together. And yes. she's the one, almost the majority of people that are on this series has been connected through her. So all the props out to Sheridan. And she is an amazing woman. And I am so glad to know her. And the fact that she's been, that she was gracious enough to connect us, like, oh, I'm, I'm immensely grateful. So yes, please go listen to Sheridan. Mm -hmm. Very inspirational. She also opens up a lot as well on that episode because when we sat down, I mean, we were, that was like, I just got back from Nepal. So this was, I was still jet lagged. It was like 
Oh, I'm glad that episode turned out okay. <laughs> I was like on another planet. But yeah, so that must have been like April 2021. So we were like a solid year in to COVID and just watching everything that she had gone through. So yeah, that was a fantastic episode and Sheridan, I can't wait for you to listen to this because we're talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're very lucky to have her on our board. Yes. Oh, she's wonderful. So let's say that somebody listening wants to get a hold of you or maybe might want to go on a trip or just learn more about sea turtles. What is the best way for someone to do that? Absolutely. Well, you know, like everybody else, we have a website. So it is seeturtles.org. Seaturtles.org is a different organization, a good organization, <laughs> but a different one than us. So there you can find all of our trips. We have trips next year planned to the Galapagos, which is sold out. Very exciting. My first trip there. We have I love trips the Galapagos. To, yeah, I can't wait. Oh. Uh, we, we have trips to Costa Rica, Belize, Panama, and Mexico and hopefully going to be adding some more on as tourism starts to come back. So we have some spots on some of those trips that people can join. You can also find out about our different programs, our Billion Baby Turtles to Rare to Wear, our Sea Turtles in Plastic program, which we didn't talk much about, but it's a really fun program that we launched this year where we're providing funding for turtle projects to both clean plastic off of nesting beaches and out of the water and then turn those that plastic into products that they can sell that help support the communities and help support the conservation work. So that's one we're very excited about. You can find out about our scholarships there as well. And then we're all over social media, Sea Turtles. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. And then we also have some feeds on Facebook and Twitter for Toroid Aware and billion baby turtles so you can find all the information there you can email me at brad at seeturtles.org even if you're just planning a trip somewhere where you know there are sea turtles you're not traveling with us send me an email and i'll tell you if there's a turtle place nearby that i can connect you with because i just love helping to make those connections but yeah you know we're always you know looking for support so if anyone is moved by you know what we're doing you know we would love donations, travelers, volunteers, all kinds of things. Mm, yes. And as I always say, if anybody reaches out to me, I'll make sure they get in touch with you. And I'll put all of those links in the show notes at rewildology.com. So if anybody's like, I don't know what he said, Brooke, what is the link? I will give it to you. <laughs> they will be available 100%. Awesome, Brad. Thank you so much for joining me and taking time out of your Friday to chat and to be a part of the Costa Rica series and cannot wait to tell everybody more about sea turtles and the amazing yeah. work you're doing. My pleasure. Yeah. And I can't wait to get you to a sea turtle project at some point. Oh yeah. We're going to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>